Hello, welcome to episode six of the Therapy Tales podcast with me, Dawn, and Jess across from me. I'm introducing her today because Jess is in the mood for a rant. So this is going to be a slightly different podcast because Jess is going to talk about what she's ranting about and I'm going to try and help her deal with it. So it's kind of a mini therapy session and you get to listen in. Um, if you hear some weird stuff, it's because we're passing the microphone back and forth because I think sometimes on these podcasts, it's not always one of us isn't always so clear. So we're going to try and make it a little louder by passing the Microsoft the Microsoft the microphone back and forth. Um, but let's start with, hey Jess, what's up? So I'm a bit ranty today. I'm a bit annoyed and frustrated at the world, and so I'm quite happy to yeah have this as a therapy session to help my brain. <laughs> and I think probably this will be useful for other trainers as well. So um, this week I've um, been dealing with a rescue. So I have a lot of rescues that are um, give me dogs to rehabilitate and it's not just any dogs so it tends to be these days that is the the end of the line dogs that you know we're going to put them down but a couple come in this week and um, the one I'm referring to has been a while back it's been rehomed but the dog in question was rehomed quite a few times in the UK and the same problem was happening and happening so the person that's got the dog now was interviewed and he mentioned that he uses an e-collar on his other dog and this dog never had a knee collar on, the, the little one. And the um, one that I've had before has never had a knee collar on either. Not necessary. But for some reason, because I'm an e collar trainer, every dog that I get must be punished by e collars. So the, the behaviour was aggression towards household dogs. So they're assuming that we just punish that by zapping the dog until it's not... not behaving that way and then that's it done and I'm so frustrated and angry at this because it's the furthest from the truth that you can get so I took on a dog this week uh, a collie um, he came on Monday he was off lead today actually and, and skittish but a little bit happier um, he's on an- anti-anxiety meds at the moment because he's so scared so the first thing that I do is try and take that edge off he's not going to learn much in my opinion by being so scared and um putting him in a situation like I have every single day with the dogs around. Um, so the, the e-collar or punishment of any kind is the furthest from my mind for, for this dog. It's just, you know, and even if he was aggressive, and he has put his owner in hospital, but he isn't doing any aggression to me. He's just yep. getting used to things, you know. Yep. Um, that's not where I go. Dogs don't come to me to get punished. They come to me to rebalance. So what I'm looking for is how do I get endorphins up? How do I get him to be able to act like a dog? And uh, so, so the thought that people think the dogs come to me just to get punished out of behaviour, it, it makes me really angry. Okay. So um, so, so it's interesting with e-collars. So um, the interesting thing about my relationship with, with you is that I'm not, I don't have dogs. And um, it's not that I'm not a dog person, I just don't have dogs. I'm, I'm, I like no responsibility, so I have a cat. Um, and so before I knew you, if I'd been talking to somebody about an e-collar, I would have been thinking about zapping the dog. That's what I think an e-collar is. And I would have assumed that we are zapping the dog to tell the dog off. That's what my understanding is. Um, probably because of any articles or news things that I'd seen about what um, an e-collar is. And so as I've come on the walks, obviously, um, we had um, a lady with chihuahuas and you know they've got little tiny necks and there was this big collar on it and you know the the chihuahua just barks at everything and and this had a collar on and she was absolutely you know 
feeling so terrible that you were putting that on her little dog. And you said, well, just feel it. And she put her hand on it and it vibrated and it vibrated what I would describe as an electric shaver. That's what I, I, you know, if you think of the vibration you get when you use an electric shaver, that was the level of vibration that this little chihuahua was feeling. And um, so what it was, it was like a cooey kind of message. It was a, hey, pay attention, something bigger different. than, different than what you're focused on needs your attention. So, um, you know, and, and to be honest with you, if you could get these for kids, it'd probably be good as well because, you know, a kid sitting on their Xbox playing Minecraft, if you could buzz them, and, and that's what a phone does, right? We have our phones on vibrate and a phone buzzes and you go, oh, I've got a message and you stop doing what you're doing and you look at your phone. So if the phone's in your pocket and you can't hear it ring or you're distracted by something else, or let's say you're at a concert and your phone buzzes, you'll stop, you'll get the phone out of your pocket. So the e-collar is not an e-collar at all. It's a vibration collar in the way it uses, or it, may, it does a tone as well, I believe. So you could have a tone, a beep. But, you know, what it does is it stops you and go, oh, there's something else. But I wouldn't have understood that in any way, shape or form until I saw you using them. Okay, yeah, so we have this perception, what you're trying to say to me is that not everybody sees it the way I do, and some trainers even, you know, so one of the things that was mentioned was that um, the other behaviourists are very, very against them and believe that we can train in different methods, and of course we can, the first thing I do, so the Chihuahuas, for example, um, I did a session with them last year, and what we do is we work on foundation stuff, so connection with the owner, um, using food, control of resources, Getting them not to be. Um, so talk a, about what you do with the food. You know the way you say about taking, getting them so they'll take the food on the walk. What is the thing that you tell them to do so that they'll actually well, be motivated I, by the food? Um, yeah, absolutely. So the the idea is that if we're giving the dog as much food as it needs in the house, and then we offer it food in the walk, it's not going to be interested in the food because it has it at home for free, right? Yep. So we we do that as a foundation, and, and even positive trainers do that because we know that dogs aren't going to eat if they're full. Um, the only thing we're going to be motivated by are things that are lacking in our lives. And for most dogs, that tends to be, uh, your, your average dog that comes along, it tends to be other dogs. So other dogs are exciting, and you're not as exciting as other dogs. And I don't see dogs very often, they're not in my house, so I want to go see them, I want to go see those dogs. Which is why most people get into trouble, because they put their dogs hurtle across the park to other people's dogs, because it's exciting. Yep. It's a novelty. Yep. So um, my foundation is to work on relationship. It's got nothing to do with the vibration. The vibration um, is, a, is a tool to help us distract the dog, and we don't use it as a correction. No. Not, not at beginner levels, anyway. Um, and a great example for, for anybody who is listening that thinks that I punish, especially dogs like uh, Harpy and Tristan, I would have been killed. If I would use punishment at that point, they would have absolutely... I mean, they were trying to kill me anyway. But if you inflict pain at that point, Jesus. So <laughs> I know you're laughing, but this is the thing. Well, I know, know, I know. This is the thing. And and so it's it's horrifying for me to think that people who are against them think that all dogs that come are, are being somehow squished into listening. You yep. must do this or else. So, so we, oh, microphone went flying. Um, so we have the same thing um, with kids, right? So I, I talk to my clients about... Um, when you are punishing your kids. And I am very aware for me, punishment is depriving a child of their technology for a number of hours or something like that. So, um, you know, and, and I always qualify when I talk to a client, when I say punishment, this is what I mean. 
because, and I think we had a conversation about, it's actually correction, it's actually conditioning, it's actually learning. And, and one of the things is with, with kids, because of lack of brain development, is a brain, their brain doesn't understand consequences. So if I take your phone off you because you did something today, by tomorrow, you don't remember what the phone has been lost for. You just know you've lost your phone. So now you're pissed off with me for taking your phone off you. I'm probably struggling because you don't have a phone, so I have to entertain you. But, you know, so the punishment is designed to teach them, don't do that again. But if the brain can't learn the lesson, it's pointless. So that's that's where we have a problem, and I think it's the same here. Well, yeah, and, and old school punishment was after an event. So the puppy pees on the floor and we rub its nose in it. Puppy's just going, I'm going to avoid you because when I pee on the floor, for some reason you do this weird thing. And they can't connect the dots in yep. between. Yep. And so for me, correction is really a redirect. So do this thing instead. Yep. So there's a big difference between a dog barking and us um, using uh, the collar to say, stop that. And I've seen it. I went to um, conferences where there are trainers that do that. Right. They use the collar. There was one guy came from the States and he used two collars on this little dog. And he stopped barking, right? Yeah. But the dog was hot up in the air, sitting there. I don't know what to do. I'm frozen. I, I'm yeah. completely stuck, right? So some people would call that shutdown. Yeah, yeah. Um, I asked him afterwards. I went up to him in the break and I said, uh, why did you not give him something else to do after that? You didn't even give him any feedback, like, what a yeah. good boy or anything. Um, not that I'm condoning what he did. I think that was awful training. But um, why didn't you give him any sort of, this is what we do instead? And his answer was, little lady, I've been doing this 15 years, right? <laughs> So he spoke down to me because yeah. he knows better, yeah. and that wasn't an answer for me. It's the least academic thing I've ever heard from any trainer ever. <laughs> so, so this is the challenge, right? So, so the reason it's so frustrating is because you work from experience and you see the world differently. So um, when most people think of punishment, they think of telling somebody off for something they did and therefore them not doing that thing again. Now, you and I both understand, because you understand dogs and I understand people, that actually you don't automatically lose the le use, learn the lesson you're being punished for. It has to be very, very clear. So um, we, we talked in the early days of people, um, you know, calling their dog over and saying, good boy, good girl, good boy, good girl for everything. And it's like, well, the dog doesn't know what they've actually done if they're just told they're a good dog all the time. They can't, there's no consequence, there's no link. And it's the same with kids. You know, um, my, my daughter would come home from school and say, I've got in trouble from the teacher today. And um, this was the consequence of me getting in trouble. I'm like, well, what did you do? I can't remember what I did. I just remember that I got in trouble. Well, that's not learning, is it? You're not going to learn anything. So one of the things we do is we go, well, they have to learn. They can't do that. But we do it by punishing or withdrawing stuff without recognizing that the animal or the child is not actually learning. So what you know is that if you want the dog to learn, you want to tell them, this is what I want you to learn. And in order to do that, you have to get their attention. So you have to get them to stop doing what they're doing and come back to you and they need to learn that coming back to you is a really cool thing to do. That's what you understand about your collars. Whereas everybody else, if you say you're going to zap or buzz or anything the dog, it's so you're interrupting their behavior. So they learn they shouldn't do that behavior. So you're actually fighting just a mass ignorance, but not in an insulting way, just in a, we have no basis on human or dogs to know any different. Well, our example in the school last week was that, wasn't it? That the, the child was actually punished and she didn't mean to. She just wanted to say that, was, that wasn't good what you did. Um, what I've also been talking about recently quite a bit is that when you're doing positive-only training, 
um, the only thing that we have if we let our dog off and the dog doesn't listen is to put the dog back in the lead. And right there is a punishment to the dog. Because yep. the dog goes, if I go near you, especially when you're shouting my name a few times and I've not come back to you, you're going to restrict my movement. So I should definitely not come back to you. And that's a really important thing to, if you're a trainer that wants to do positive goal, that's a really important thing to think about. That If we've got nothing else except catching the dog, then we become the punishment yep. and they start avoiding us. Yeah, and, and that's that's it. That's that's knowing the way that the thinking goes, which is... Um, seeing it from the perspective of the other. Seeing it from the perspective of the other. So it's like, we are, it's really hard to let go of the fact that somebody's done something wrong and I need to teach them that that's wrong. But actually, you need to teach them what's right so that they can choose to do the right thing next time. That would have been a better principle for dog trainers. Not positive only, not force free, but thinking, how, how do I teach this dog what the right thing to do is? Yeah. That should be a basis. And the same basis for humans, the same basis for kids who don't have that ability to understand consequences. So we need to make the links really direct, you know, whether it's using different words for different things so the dog can go, when I do this, I get this word. When I do this, I get this word. Whether it's the fact that, you know, when a dog is running away from you, you're freaking out and you start shouting at the dog and realizing, what does that sound like to the dog? That sounds like, well, it's like, you know, the wait till your father gets home kind of idea. Well, look, you know what? I'm already in trouble. So what the hell? I might as well go and just enjoy myself and I'll deal with the consequences afterwards. And that's why you get a lot of behavior problems in kids because they're just like, I can't win whatever I do. I'm going to be in trouble. So sorry, I might, I might as well, as well just go and do it. I might as well stay out here, yeah. So um, obviously you've got a unique perspective because you're your own person and you've come along um, with a complete blank slate on dog behavior. Um, you're a little bit biased because you're also my friend. But I don't think that I think that you you know enough about animals to know if if I was doing something that was uncomfortable and, and other people do too they're not stupid yep. they wouldn't keep coming back if yep. they were like you know I'm not comfortable with my dog you know being treated this way and um, so you know the, the history of the collars is and and what's going on sort of behind the scenes is that there were there were quite hot collars back in the day in the 80s and they were used as punishment. So obviously time's moved on and technology's moved on as well. We've got much nicer um, yep. use and, and the ones with just the tone now and so on. And of course, for me, GPS collars come under that title as well, which is a no-brainer. I yep. know when my dog is on my phone, this is amazing, you know, for those of us that have puppies that go into wandering trees and stuff, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so... It doesn't stop them rolling in poo, though, does it? Oh, my gosh. So, um, yeah, we have trainers that have fought really hard to be positive only and, and I think I, I totally understand where it started and where it's come from and it's come from the fact that um, in the old days it was compulsion based so you'll sit because I'll, I'll force you to sit and I'll keep you in this position and you can't move until I let you go and nothing to do with relationship yeah. which I, I, I totally get I love that the principle but my brain argues with the logic right um, and we have the, the scientific community that sit in their labs and watch rats and dogs maybe not so much nowadays but you know they watch the behavior um, and that's a world away from what I'm doing in practical real life dealing with the humans as well because I know that I can take pretty much anybody's dog 99% of the dogs will behave differently away from the people but our job is trying to get people to do what we do and see it how we see it and understand the dog's body language and see it from the dog's perspective. So there's a whole, you know, it's a world away. And if you're doing that with pet people, that's fine. If you're doing that with dogs that have bitten, and you know, um, 
Yeah, it's, it's a huge step up. So we've got this sort of war going on for no reason. We're on the same page. Yep. Yep. Really, really frustrating for me. So I've had police. I've had the dog warden yesterday. We've had uh, other rescues that will all say, yeah, yeah, we actually love this. This is great. This makes total sense. You're saving lives. But we can't publicly say that. Rescues that will go, do what you need to do. And I'm like, but I'm not doing anything bad. I'm literally working on the dog's biochemistry first. It's my first thing. This collie that I've got in, he's um, it's a really interesting case because it's sad. It's very sad as well. If a dog's outwardly noisy, so we're speaking about this in the walk today, it's outwardly noisy, and you've seen them, they come along lunging, barking, um, and it might even be from fear, but he's making such a scene, and if he, he's let go, he will try to eat somebody and flatten somebody. So the humans go, oh, it's fearful, because he's a lovely dog at home. Okay. I see while he's trying to do harm, so we, we definitely need to make sure that's managed in the meantime before we change that. Um, but people see that as aggression. Okay. The opposite end of the scale is the dog that's body language is so quiet and stiff. I walked into the house and I immediately was like, he, he, they can't figure out any triggers. But if he's there every single day, if that's his body language every single day, um, I'm, you know, he's a fraction, a hair fraction away from being aggressive. And he's yep. put his owner in hospital. So this yep. is a thing that's happened. So D-Day was Friday for him. We decided that was the end. We're not going to carry on with him. He's not rehomable. Okay. Can't, you can't. Who's going to take on a dog that's, that's put somebody in hospital, right? Right, yeah. They're not really humble. Um, so they, they ask the behaviourist, so what do we do? What, what do we do with this dog? And my instinct is he's not comfortable in this situation. He's a farm collie. He's in the middle of the city. Uh, he does no dog friends. Right. And, yeah, his body language was very uncomfortable. I took him on the walk today, and he was all right. Very sort of flinchy with dogs approach him. He doesn't want to engage at all. But a lot of people say, what a lovely dog, right? Okay. So he's the opposite end of the scale from the dog that's outwardly making lots of noise. Yeah. But it's the same principle in his yep. head. Yep. Yeah, which is the, you know, what we have as humans, the fight, fight, freeze. And the shutdown is a, a really important, shutdown is kind of the extreme end of it. And I think you hear a lot more people around trauma talking about shutdown now. Um, it's not just freeze. I, I call it freeze and freak. So um, externally you're unable to move, but internally you're totally freaking out. So I think freeze and freak is way more normal than freeze or any of the other things. And they're survival mechanisms, right? So if you're being attacked by a tiger, you have multiple options that give you the best chance of surviving. So one of the options is to be able to run away really fast. And to run away really fast, you would need to ignore a whole bunch of things. You need to ignore exhaustion. You need to ignore pain. So if you stand on something sharp, you need to ignore it. You need to be able to just keep going no matter what. Ignore <laughs> yeah, everything, everything, it, nothing matters except getting away from surviving that encounter. So the, the flight response is designed to allow you to have enough adrenaline and enough stuff going on that you can instinctively just run as fast as you can. Um, that one would also probably tie in there, well, it all ties into the, the fight one, which is everybody ignores the fight one, right? Nobody realizes that aggressive behavior is exactly the same thing. So, if you're being attacked by a tiger and you decide to stand and fight, you need to have a bit of a boost of strength so you've got some chance of doing it. This is why you hear about people under extreme circumstances being able to lift cars and things like that, you know, because you get this massive boost of strength to give you the chance. So, in, in work or something where you've got somebody being aggressive towards you, that's the fight to the fight or flight. 
if you have anger issues, that's the fight or the fight or flight. It's exactly the same response to feeling threatened. Oh. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I was just thinking about people that used to come along. The word dominance in alpha seems to disappear now. Um, I, don't, I don't hear it a lot. But people that used to come along maybe 10 years ago and say, my dog's really dominant or my dog's the alpha. And I would smile and say, a true alpha. You remember Kumye Mayakita? A true alpha doesn't go around fighting. He'll fight if he's pushed to it, but he's confident enough in himself. He's not got insecurities. Yeah. So to me, an alpha or a dominant dog is the one that doesn't need to fight. He, he walks about going, I'm, I'm quite content. I know my own strength. Um, and you, you see it in some humans, the ones that are the noisy ones. You know, I'm thinking about young men yeah. or men that are coming into themselves in their 20s. Um, the more secure they are, the more calm and outwardly confident they are. You see that? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, the reason there's these delays is because we're passing the mic back and forth to try and make the sound quality better. Um, yeah, and this is the thing I see with people. You know, I have clients who have anger issues, um, and they don't realise it's a triggered state. It's all. Do I have anger issues? Uh, no. <laughs> Not I don't like, think I do. <laughs> I think you know the thing you got to bear in mind is it's normal to have all of these states and come and go into all of these states. We all do. That's part of our genetic programming. Um, it's when it happens too often and for not normal circumstances that you need to be addressing it. But, you know, somebody who has anger issues to me is, I treat them exactly the same as somebody who comes to me and says, I've got anxiety. It's exactly the same thing. It's got a root, it's got a reason, and it's a reason, it's a survival reason. So the last one is the freeze. So the freeze one is, um, you know, if you need to hide, you need to stay very still for long periods of time until the tiger's wandered off. So the freeze is designed to let you stay very still for a long period of time. So these are all responses designed to help you survive an encounter from a tiger. Now, if you stop when you're being attacked by a tiger and you use your logical brain and you kind of try and work out what the best terrain is for running away from it, whether you should hide or fight or freeze or whatever you should do, if you do any of that, it will be eating you before you get a chance to act. Right? So your brain is programmed to not give you the thinking time but when faced with any sort of threat, automatically take you into one state. And by the way, people will have one state that they always go into. If you're a fighter, you'll always go into fight. If you're freeze, you'll always freeze. It's not that you'll sometimes fight, you'll sometimes freeze, and you'll sometimes fight. Very few people flight these days. Very few people just run away. You don't get people get up and just leg it. So what you tend to get people is avoiding, and you tend to get people who will be passive-aggressive or something. And, you know, we've had conversations about people who've been really... You know, excuse the language, quite shitty with you in the past, but that's them being defensive. It's a, it's a defensive response because they feel triggered. And um, so recognizing that your dog or your human is not in their brain switched on thinking state means that it's your job to adapt to that, read the language and, and take the appropriate action rather than sort of say, let's just sit down and talk about this and work out what you could do differently. Or, you know, do some logical high-level stuff. Yeah, so um, that's quite a good, a good point to talk about the threshold of stress. Mm. So um, I had a, a couple of people actually asking me this week um, about, they've been working with other trainers who said keep the dog under threshold. So learning only takes place under threshold, which doesn't really make sense to me because that means that if we don't learn when we're in a traumatic state, then we wouldn't remember the, the lesson, which would be don't put yourself in that again. So um, learning does take place. Limited learning takes place when we're super stressed, as far as I understand it. But 
if we were over threshold, and I've asked a few people to explain to me what this means to them, because it's okay a trainer coming along and saying, get the dog under threshold, but when you're a couple of years in and you put the dog under threshold the whole time, and the dog hasn't progressed any, that's great, but then you haven't progressed any, so yes. you haven't done anything different to, to you know help the dog. So, um, is what we're doing taking the dog over threshold? If, if, what even does that mean? Threshold. Um, if it's not working, then we wouldn't see results the next day and the next day. The dog would be the same. So, yes. in a week of walking out with us, the dog would be doing the same thing on the Monday as it did on the uh, sorry on the Friday as it did on the Monday. Um, and that's not the case. Most dogs, and there's some dogs that are slower yeah. on the uptake. It's never the case though. So there's always a difference. So, so, so this is the really interesting thing, and it's an, another thing that I talk to clients a lot about, which is failure, right? So lots of us have fear of failure, um, fear of getting things wrong. It's a, a big problem with kids in school. But if you think about anything in life, you can only learn by messing up. You only learn by doing it wrong. So a baby learns to walk by falling over lots. It learns how to balance by falling over, by holding on to things. If it never got a chance to do any of that stuff, it would never learn to walk. Um, and you end up with a bigger fear if you don't try things and be okay with messing up. So I've had clients, for example, when I've worked with kids, I've had kids that sailed through school, like have been, you know, they found it easy. They've gone and done their exams. They've got all A's in their exams and they haven't had to study. The parents had nagged them to study and they didn't listen to them. And then they did great in their exams and they're like, see, I know my stuff, I don't need to study. And then they do the next exam. So in the UK, we have GCSEs to start off with, and then we have A-levels. I've done um, GCSEs, A-levels, I've done uh, university, and I've done a master's. And I can tell you, of all the exams I ever took, A-levels were the hardest, by a million miles, because they had, it was like a year's worth of learning or two years' worth of learning that you had to pack into exams. They were definitely the hardest exams I've ever done. Um, so what happens with these kids that they do their first exams and they sail through them and they think they've got it sorted and then they fail the next exams because they were hard and they did need to study. But because they never failed the first ones, they never learned to study, they never learned to correct themselves and they end up actually just roasted because they're just like, I'm terrible, I'm not as good as I thought I was. They can't cope because their perception of themselves is destroyed because they thought they were clever and they think failing the exams means they weren't clever. Actually, it's not that at all. It's just they never got a chance to learn. You have to learn. So, so the story I tell everybody is the guy who invented the glue that we use on post-it notes. So he was working in a lab, a guy called Stephen Silver or something like that. He was working in a lab, inventing a glue that would stick aircraft parts together. Right? So he's there doing his little experiments, and he comes across this glue. There's this weird glue because it sticks and unsticks. Now, if this particular scientist, which is all about experiments and trying and failing, right? If this particular scientist had a real fear of failure and went, sat there and went, oh my God, I'm the worst scientist ever. I can't even invent anything near a glue that'll stick these aircraft parts together. I should just quit because I'm useless. Then we wouldn't have post-it notes. Instead, what he went was, that's really interesting. That's a glue that sticks and unsticks. I wonder how I could use that. And he eventually sold it to 3M. Who made post-it notes right so because this guy was able to fail and learn from that we've got post-it notes and that's the problem so when we talk about thresholds if you've never if you've never tested and failed so how do you know, you know what's <laughs> going to work so everybody the reason these walks work so well is because actually they get a chance to fail which you don't get in a training class where somebody talks at you but you've got a lot of trainers in this world who the, the phrase setting up for failure is a big faux pas. You don't set them up for failure. So 
if I went into one of these forums and said, one of my ways of teaching counter surfers not to counter surf, their, their way, by the way, is to have nothing on the counter surfer. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I had a rescue take my do dog off me that was in for re rehab with me for being aggressive when he stole stuff off the counter. He would attack people if he thought that they were going to take it off him. So um, they wanted him to be trained by having nothing on the counter, which is absolutely fine in principle, isn't it? Just have nothing on your surfaces, that's great. But the day you forget, so months pass, and the day you forget and you leave something on the surface, the dog steals it and you've got a, you know, a bitten ankle or whatever. So it's not practical. No. So my way of setting them up for failure is to teach them to leave, and you know the way I do that without words and, and um, hold on to the food, give it to them when they have self-control, add the word in. So you do this over a period of time. During that time, it's fine to do nothing on the counters while you're training, right? Yeah. That's fine. But once you've got to the point where you can teach to leave, you then put a block of cheese. Because a big block of cheese is the best five pounds you ever spend, right? Because the dog can't eat a block of cheese in one go. Right. It's impossible to swallow that block of cheese. So you buy a big block of cheese and you have it half off the counter. Right. Bal balancing on the on the edge. Yeah, yeah. And you ask him to leave and you leave the room and you look through a crack in the in the hinges yeah, in the yeah. door. And the moment he goes, she's not there, yeah. he steals it. You jump in the room and you go, Oi, that was rude. And he spits it out and you try it again and keep going until he starts to look at it and he goes, Right, I'm not supposed to do that, right? So setting him up for failure yep. teaches him what not to do. Yeah. So I can go through life, clicker training, not stealing. But I need him to steal to understand the other half of the equation. So, so this ties into the pathway discussion we had, right? So our brains learn by experience. Our brains learn by doing, not by not doing, right? So every time you do something, two pathways, two uh, neurons are connected by a physical pathway, an electric pathway. And we talked about the piano thing on the podcast, right? So we'll talk about the piano thing. So um, there's a guy called Dr. David Hamilton. He, he's uh, local in Scotland. He's a brilliant guy. He used to be a pharmaceutical scientist, um, and one of the things he found um, when a medicine was being taken into mainstream use, it only had to outperform the placebo by 5% to be accepted into mainstream use, right? So he's comparing medicines to sugar paste and chalk, and it only needs to be 5% better to be used as a medicine. So you could have thousands of people get better on the medicine. Equally, thousands of people could get better on nothing. So he kind of got to the point, he's like, that's really interesting. How is that even possible? So he, he quit doing that and he went off to research it. So he looked at the mind-body connection. And we were talking um, before about um, if you had the dog, it'd be fine. But you put the human element in and you put other random factors and everything changes, right? So one of the examples he gives is if you put paracetamol in a test tube, 100% of the time it would work the same. But if you put it in a body, sometimes it'll be great, sometimes it'll be rubbish. And it's really interesting to think of it like that way. So you're not saying that paracetamol is useless or doesn't work. You're just saying other factors will affect how effective it is. So one of the experiments he talks about when he talks about the wiring of the brain is they took three groups of people. One group played the piano for, they practiced the piano for like five minutes a day for two weeks, something like that. They did an MRI scan or fMRI scan of, of all these three groups of people at the start and at the end of the experiment. So you have one group sitting in front of the piano going every day for a couple of weeks. Second group of people didn't touch a piano, did that in their head. In their head, they rehearsed playing the piano. Same, same amount of time, same amount of everything, but just not physically ever touching a piano. Third group is your control group, doesn't do anything with pianos at all, right? So they did the MRI scan of them at the start and end. The group that physically rehearsed 
and mentally rehearsed had the same changes in their brains at the end of the experiment for not touching it. So our brains learn by doing and our brains learn by repetition. But you can't learn by absence. You can't learn, so your brain gives you dopamine for doing something. It can't give you dopamine for not doing something, for not traveling a pathway. So if you're teaching somebody something, you have to grow the pathway and you have to strengthen the pathway. So you can't teach a dog to not touch something. You can teach a dog to stay. You can teach a dog to um, wait until you come back in the room. But you can't teach a dog to not do something. You can only teach it what you need it to do instead. Well, that's a principle that's, again, that's missing. Because um, the idea with the positive only is that you'll um, reward the dog for doing the thing over and over and over until it becomes a habit. And then it won't do the other thing. But that's not how it works. No. <laughs> we need to learn how to not do the other thing also. Yeah. Otherwise, the dog's never going to be of experience, and it's just a, well, let's see what happens. Right? Yeah, um, yeah it, it's, it's, a, it's a minefield, it's a complicated subject, but it's very, very frustrating as somebody who tries to be logical and tries to do you know, the right thing and not rely on... I think that that's the foundation principle, really. People should be asking, what kind of trainer are you? As in, where's your, where does your ethics lie? Is it about control and domination? Do you know? But you... You understand that because this is your world, right? And again, me, blank piece of paper, doesn't really know anything about this. If I was looking for a dog trainer, I would be looking for somebody who has results, right? I would be looking for somebody who I can have a rapport with, who doesn't make me feel anxious about myself when I talk to them, because I'm probably already feeling a bit rubbish because I've tried everything and it's not working. So I'm looking for a safe, non-judgmental space with somebody who can work to the way I learn and isn't going to make me feel stupid because I don't know what I'm doing. I am not, if I heard about e-collars before, I would be like, I'm not a big fan of those. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And um, those of us not in the dog world don't know about positive only, control and dominant. We don't know all these terms. They're, they're not relevant to us unless we kind of have that extra level of curiosity, which some people will have, obviously. But that's kind of an inner thing. In the same way as there's inner things in my therapy circles, you know, we've talked about me not being a valid therapist because I don't have that BACP qualification or psychology, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist. So some people, because I don't work to the big um, diagnostic manual, think that I'm not a valid, credible therapist. And yet I help people quickly and they can get on with their life. But that doesn't count in my world but it counts to my clients in the same way as the positive only versus control and domination doesn't it counts a lot in your world but it doesn't count to your clients yeah i guess i guess my inner struggle is um you know i'm happy doing my thing i'm happy that i'm helping people but i'm always bigger picture as you know you know let's get into the schools and, and help kids learn and all that it's, it's bigger it's bigger than just me do that thing again, me. I've been listening to the podcasts and not liking my voice very much. I don't know how you listen. I can't listen to it. I can't stand listening because to my voice. Because when I'm talking just now, I'm thinking about my stuff. And when I hear it later, I'm thinking about what you've said. And it, go, and it, and it sits better with okay. me afterwards to hear it twice. And I hate my voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I need to accept that it's okay for you know, what we're doing, everything's fine, people are happy, we're getting results, and um, 
coming back. That's the most important thing. Like today was pretty cool, you know, with um, it was um, one of the clients has been coming for months and months, and she's just enjoying coming walking. In fact, she's a super client now, where you know she's um, helping others, and she's going to the vet, and, and we. We used the humans there to pretend to be vets touching the dog because she's the dog's muzzled and he's a bit uncomfortable with people coming close sometimes and it doesn't seem to be females or males so sometimes he goes I don't like to look at you um, and even though he's muzzled he's a big dog so she doesn't want him to take a pop at anybody so we're practicing handling skills for her showing her what to do with the leads and then we were getting um, people that were with us to, to touch him and sort of pinch a bit of skin pretending to put a vaccination in the back of his neck and yeah he, he was it was great it was really good to have that and a really completely random thing for us to do today different from our regular walks um, and this is why people say it really is educational because every time it's a different topic and it can be a completely random topic but it's, um, it's relevant to you know each person and, and so what you're describing there is learning by doing but you're also you do what I do which is this is why this works so, so both of us, and I think that's why we kind of get on so well, is both of us have the same way of approaching things. It's like, okay, I've thought about this. I've studied it. I've looked at my clients. I've tried things out, and I've come to this understanding. So when I talk to you now, I help you with that same understanding. So we, I don't just say do it. I help you understand why. I give you a chance to practice, and then I help you learn how it works better. And so you come away owning it and knowing you know how to do it and if it doesn't go quite right because you understand why you can flex and adapt you do that naturally and i do that naturally too and that's why the walks work really well but i still haven't worked out how to change the world you still haven't taught me that god damn it because you're assuming i know it's like <laughs> but that's so we know we get frustrations and, and i think um we were having this conversation a while back which is it is really hard for me because I, i'm like you if i could get into schools and i could talk to first year high school, second year high school, and the teachers, by the way, because they need it, um, about some of these core things about not being able to read minds and what happens, what failure really means. If I can do that, and every time I do it, everybody loves it, changes lives just hearing me, and the teachers just as much, right? It's just a wonderful thing to be able to do, and to be able to talk to more people means I can reach more people, which is why I wrote the book. Um, that's a brilliant thing to do. And it's desperately needed. But I'm not a valid therapist in the world, so I can't get into the schools easily. I can if I've got a client who brings me into a school, and every time they do, it works really well, but it still doesn't open up all these doors, right? So for me, it's really frustrating because there's so many more people out there I can help. Every time I hear about a celebrity in the news about something, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, I could really help them. It's like, let me at Oprah, let me at all these people. Honestly, I'm desperate to get to Oprah. Um, but I, I just want to help these people, but I can't. And that can consume me because I know I can help and I'm not able to. So I focus on what I can do. Have you ever found anybody that does what you do? Not in the way I do it. That's the, that's the challenge, you know. It's, I, I think there's, um, there's a guy called Seth Godin, um, G-O-D-I-N. And he, he has a daily newsletter, which is brilliant. And he, he wrote a book called Poke the Box. He's written a few books. He's written he's quite a few like books. Seth Godin. Well. Yeah, yeah. He's got some really interesting ideas. And one of, the, one of the books, I can't even remember which one was now, he was talking about creativity. And he was basically saying, if you've got an idea that's new, you can never get feedback from anybody else on what to do because it's so totally new and so totally different. So you've got to learn to take input but not change the way you are because of it. I thought I've actually had that as kind of a mantra 
going through because I'm like, okay, nobody does what I do in the way I do it, which can make me feel um, like I'm doing it wrong. It's really easy to make you question yourself. And because we're both self-aware, we're going to question ourselves a lot and say, am I being arrogant? Am I being stupid? But you're getting results. You keep on going, but my clients, it's changing their lives. So if it works, so what? That's, that's my theory. It makes you feel a little bit like a crazy person because it's like this shouldn't be working because this is the model that's taught or that everyone else is, is doing. You know, for me, the online certification is this is uh, this is um, the standard model. This is what we teach. This is what we preach. You know, and, and a lot of the younger trainers are doing it that way. And, and so Ashley and Chelsea have been doing online stuff as well. So they're they're giving feedback to me about what they've come across. And obviously, they've got a lot of practical knowledge, and then they've got you know, me telling them, and obviously the scene as well. So they've got a bit of an all-round view, rather than just being told and then go right. This I've learned this, so it must yeah. be so. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I, I like the thing that you say that you're questioning yourself, and and I do feel a bit like that. And then that's part of also, um, I think that's really healthy to be questioning and to say, you know, am I doing it right? Keep checking yourself. And am I going crazy? Because these people seem to be coming back and, and are, are happy with what we're doing. And then having a bit of knowledge of ethics, I think, is useful as well. So, um, yeah, ethics is a huge minefield. In fact, you can do a whole degree in ethics, can't you? It's, it's... Yeah. So, so I, I have insurance and I have a governing body for what I do um, because of that, that reason. You know, I'm not going to be so arrogant to think that I'm brilliant and everything I'm going to do is going to work. You have to be self-aware you have to question yourself you have to constantly improve your knowledge and look at how other things work and actually peer reviews are really good peer 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 support so um for me talking to other therapists even if they're not quite the same um so you can have supervision in therapy which is where you have somebody will help you work through the stuff that you're struggling with and also be back up if you have a really tricky case it's like what should i do this person says they're suicidal you know, your supervisor will support you in making the right choices. But peer supervision is brilliant because you get a group of therapists together, you discuss anonymously your cases, and you get different people's perspectives, and that keeps you true and real as well. Um, and, and I don't know whether anything exists in, in your circles where you get that. Well, yeah, with, um, um, part of the uh, CFB, the Canine Feeling Behaviour Association, so we had to hand in case studies, 10 case studies, and they were, people were contacted to find out, you know, how we worked and what feedback we would give and so on. And, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, and then interviews, a couple of interviews with different professors of behaviour and so on. And there's a group that exists. I don't think they're particularly supportive. I actually think they might put this on their page. That's what I'm thinking as we speak, because there's a page, but we kind of fire stuff off every so often, but it's not very engaging. Yeah. And I think it's such an important um, thing to have, like you say, because then you can share stories. Because we do it, but yep. we're not doing the same thing. No. So, do you but know? It, does, it does work. So, you know, I, I, do, I do mentoring. I do mentoring for other therapists of all different types of therapy for exactly this it grows our knowledge it makes us better for our clients um and i think it's a really good thing you know luckily the where i trained the sort of therapy i trained in everybody who's trained in that therapy is part of a group and we have a forum and everybody's really supportive and if anybody was struggling with a particular tricky case everybody's got different ideas and i think it's really valuable to hear other people's ideas and then but the important thing is to be able to decide does that work for me or not 
And that's really hard when you're kind of going spiky stick, oh, I'm rubbish at what I do because everybody else says something different. So it can be really hard to use it. But actually, there's a real value in a peer peer discussion group to keep yeah. you real and better at what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I set up one um, for trainers in the local area here. It's not, again, really used much, but I don't know if it's the same for therapists, but a lot of trainers um, still are very insular. Mm. So, you know, I'm not going to speak to anybody. Everyone's a competition. Um, and it might be changing now because there's so much work because of lockdown in recent years and so on. Yeah. So it might be changing. People feel that we're relaxed about sharing stories and helping each other. Um, certainly, obviously, the, the people that I'm mentoring, there's about six now, um, you know, they throw off things to me, and, and that's great, but I feel like I'm the top of the food chain there where I'm helping them, rather than, you know, I've always looked for somebody, I've gone to numerous trainers in this area, in fact, I don't know if I ever told you the reason I became a trainer in the first place. Um, to keep an eye on time. I know. It's quite a fun story, though. It is. Go for it. Well, the... Um, when I was very, very young, I never had a dog. So, well, I never had a dog until I was 20. There you go. I was 20 and moved out of my house, at my parents' house, and got my first dog. Before then, I was renowned in the village for taking people's dogs and walking them okay. for free. I got Kit Kats and stuff you know, when I got back. Just took people's dogs for a while. I love dogs. Um, and I used to steal the ham in the fridge to train the dogs. Now, okay. I don't remember. That's positive reinforcement at its best, right? And I wasn't making dogs do stuff. I was... I've always felt like we should um, pay a dog or at least get an exchange of energy, do you know? And um, there's this really sad story about, uh, goodness, a rough collie. I was thinking of Lassie there. Very similar to Lassie, but I, I've never felt like there's, a, there's this um, sort of line of thought with, with people. That they've watched these movies growing up and they're going to get a dog and it's my best friend and they like me because they're, they're cool dogs right. that will just hang around with me. Yep. And the reality is they're going to hang out with you because you've got or you do cool stuff, not because you're just a cool person. Yeah. I've always kind of known that. Okay. That we, you know, we have to earn it rather than just I'm going to like you because. Do you see yep. what I mean? Yep, yep. And, and um, there was one time we lost a. Well, we didn't. A rough collie was lost. I had nothing to do with the losing. It happened to be on my property at the time. <laughs> I was at the blame for these things. Um, I was missing for six days and no one could get hold of it. And the owner said a comment to me that stuck with me for a long time. She was, oh, um, imagine it'll make its way home. Because that's what lassie dogs do, isn't it? They make their way home, even though it had no idea where it was. Right, okay. And I just went, I just went ah, this is, this is one of these things that people think about that I, you know, so far from reality that I'm like, hmm. Keeping it on that. Anyway, so um, I used to take take food and train the dogs. I'm not sure how I knew that. I watched my dad training on a very aggressive parrot. And I think that a lot of my knowledge of aggression came from that. And the amount of patience that he had and, and step by step, that's really important. Um, and yeah, the sad story was that this, this rough collie that was um, mine was my neighbour's. Or not neighbours, in the village. And he would wait for me off the school bus. Um, he'd run away from home and get in trouble. And wait for me in my garden and uh, it's one of these amazing dogs that just like decides that you're the best person in the world you know and I was just a kid and then I was supposed to look after him and I'm so excited because it was my first ever dog experience of looking after him for the weekend mom and right. dad finally said yes and the, the woman came to drop him off for the weekend and we were at the back garden and didn't hear the door and she took him away and I never got to look after him and no. so, never had a dog for 20 years wow. overnight isn't that sad uh, he'll be long dead now. His name was Saber. 
<laughs> amazing dog. I've always wanted a rough collie, but it was always the hair, you know, the smell of the hair puts me off and the effort. Right. And now I've got a chow chow. <laughs> and you know that that dog never rolled in poo. No. no. <laughs> and this dog rolls in poo every week. Bless her. So um I forgot the point in that. that tell you about how my... I ended up with a dog as a dog trainer. Yeah, and the point is that I knew from a young age that we should um, exchange the energy, so give something. And I don't know how I knew that. I don't know if it was watching TV thing or I was a trainer in a previous life. I'm not sure. But that's when I first um, came to Dundee and got my first dog. I was training him really, really young. We Jet Russell, and took him to a class and watched this trainer with his own dogs and went, "I'm not doing that." No way. Like forcing sits, forcing downs. Yeah. I'm not doing that. No way. I remember there was this lovely girl that, that said to me, oh, you're quite advanced for like 12 people puppy. Do you know, you're quite advanced. I was going to tell you why I became a trainer. I think I was a trainer at that point, but not sort of professionally. Like. Yeah. And then um, uh, about six months later, I got a second dog from the kennels and he'd been rehomed several times and he was mental. In right. fact, he barked constantly. And my mum went to me, what the heck did you do that for? Why would you get this dog? And oh my God, he was the best dog ever. Right. Jazz. Best dog in the world. It took about a year to sort him out. Um, and the two of them started fighting. So okay. now it's dead easy for me to understand why they were fighting. But back then I was like, these two dogs are not getting on. What do I do? And I phoned every dog trainer I could find. And nobody could help me with this problem. So I had to help myself, didn't I? And the problem is that little prince was on a pedestal. So he was my puppy. He was treated like... People treat their dogs. Yeah. Come on my lap whenever you want to. <clears throat> oh, you're hungry, I'll feed you. Oh, you want to play? I'll, I'll play with you. And um, Jazz came in, and Jazz was naturally um, more outgoing, more experienced in life. And, and Jazz went, I'm the boss around here. And Prince went, no, 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 I'm the boss around here. She told me that. And their fights were pretty nasty, like jaws on jaws, um, cuts, blood, you, you, know, you name it. Nasty, nasty fights where I couldn't separate them myself. And, you know, you go through a few months of that, and you, you just feel like you're absolutely desperate and desolate so um, I started reading okay. and learning and changing and dogs got on lived together for another six years before sadly Jazz um, had to get put down yep. um, so yeah and sometimes I find it really hard to put myself into people's shoes that are way back there because I've never really been quite back where people are I've yes. always kind of known little, little bits but there was nobody doing what I did, which is very similar to what you're saying. Yeah. So I've always been looking for a mentor, but never quite found one. And then found myself becoming the mentor, which is really new and interesting and a little bit scary. And it's the same problem I have. If I go to any group, I've gone to lots of groups. I've gone to, I, I went to a talk by a lady at the local university, was billed as one of the top 20 in her field, um, working with trauma. And I arranged to meet her for a coffee afterwards. And Welcome just to learn yeah, well, I, I was well. I want to do a PhD on trauma, okay. and she worked at the university, and I thought she would be, having been billed as this, um, an ideal supervisor. And I found her talk um, lacking somewhat. Let's put it that way. But then I often do. I often see things very differently to other people. Um, but I thought she was an interesting person. There was more to learn. She was doing research into this area. So I arranged to meet her for lunch. I met her. Spent two hours talking. One hour, 45 of that was her asking me how I did my job, how I did my work, and asking me if I was setting up a mentoring group that she could join. 15 minutes was about me talking about my approach to trauma, at the end of which she went, that's brilliant, you should just definitely do some research on that. Um, <laughs> but then universities have been a bit funny with their lecturers and things, and she ended up 
um, not really working and, and having a lot of stress and stuff. So that never went anywhere. But every single time I do this, every single person I reach out to, every single group, they end up tapping me up for information or they become my clients, to be honest, because they realize I can help them. And it can be frustrating. And I think maybe then we don't look for peer support. We look for what you and I do. I think you and I have both grown from our relationship from because we challenge each other on the way we think. We question what we're doing. And that from, translates back. Yeah, and neither of us are worried about um, the nitty-gritty bits. So we're not like, this is what we do, and, and screw you, this is what we're doing. Yeah. We're going, well, why do I do it? Yeah. Let's let's really look at it from somebody else's perspective. And yeah. then do we still you know, think? And it's not being frightened of changing what you're doing. No. No, because it's for the good of the people that we're working with. That's what it comes down to. But it also, we can keep each other real with that thing you said, which is... Um, it's really hard to remember what it is for people at square one. And actually, when you're mentoring, it's the same thing. It's really hard to remember that you also struggled with something like that. You also didn't know that stuff. And we can lose people if we lose sight of that. But we can also get emotionally frustrated because we're saying the same thing over and over again. That's why I've written four books. I just If I say the same thing over and over again enough times, I just think, oh, I'll write a book because then everybody gets to hear the same thing. And, and, you know, you do social media, you do videos, because if you're saying the same thing, then lots of people need to hear it. And if you want to reach more people, you do a video or you write an article or you write a book, in my case, which is a bit extreme. Yeah, and it takes so long for things to filter down. You know, when, when I first um, started, I was one of the people that uh, um, got Catherine O'Driscoll. She sadly died a few years ago, but she was a huge advocate for uh, raw feeding and, and thinking about not using toxins and, and not vaccinating every single year and so on. So she did a lot of talks around here. She and I were good friends um, when she lived in Forfar, saw her quite a bit. And... Um, she said to me, it takes 15 years for new information to seep down into the public domain. That's a heck of a long time. I can believe that. Right? It's 15 years. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm just starting now to hear occasionally from people, oh, I use uh, food as I was, I, my daily allowance, dog's daily allowance is part of the, the treats, if you like, in, in air bracket, air quotes. Um, and you know, I've been preaching this for 20 years, and we're just starting to hear people start to come forward and say it now. Yeah. Um, so hopefully in another 15, 20 years, people will <laughs> be adopting different methods. That's the thing, you just keep saying the same thing over and over again. You learn, you adapt, you find different ways of communicating it. And if you get fed up that you're seeing too many people where the message isn't getting to them, you find a bigger platform, a more global platform, and you do it. But you can't complain about people not knowing stuff if you're not telling them. That's what it comes down to. That's why I use my social media for. That's what you use your social media for if you don't tell people they don't know and they're going to go with you know there's lots of people out there that shout louder and talk twaddle you know and and you can't blame the people for listening to that because that's what they're drowned out with if we want to change it you have to start one person at a time and you have to do something and, and i think that's that's always the thing that gets past the frustration it's like well what can i do one of the things that i always say to people you can only do one thing at a time right like right now, if, if we have some big thing that we need to do that is kind of weighing on us, you're, you and I are sat in Starbucks with a microphone in front of us. I can't do any of that stuff, right? There's no point me sitting here worrying and stewing on it and stressing about it. I can't do it. If I can do it, do it. If you can't, don't sit and stew on it. Wait until you can do it. And I think take action. And if you can't take action, just put it to one side for now because there's nothing you can do. Yeah, well, I think you've taught me that, acceptance. And... Um... Be, be, be um, 
competent in what you're doing with the the small fry. And that's I'm not trying to be derogatory, no. as in you know work with the clients, uh, do a good job, and don't worry so much about the bigger picture because the bigger picture will either change in time or it won't. But that's not my responsibility, which is um, not my really... circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> it's a good place to end. Yes. <laughs> I'll speak to you all again soon.